0: Guess what, you know, was Conrad Hilton when he first set out like world famous? No. You're like, what's this Hilton Hotel? Is it run by a serial killer? Who knows? Let's give it a try, right? The Hilton Hotel chain does not start off as a world famous hotel chain. It starts off as one guy creates a hotel.
1: So welcome to Blitzscaling Yourself. I'm Julian Newman, building a new startup. And every week I come across one uh, obstacle. Uh, Chris helps me overcome it. Chris uh, Yeh is one of the world's most famous uh, investors. He founded his own VC fund, uh, where he funds some of the best uh, technology businesses in the world. But mostly, Chris is known as the author of Blitzscaling, a book he co-authored with the, the founder of LinkedIn. The introduction is written by Bill Gates. It's part of the core curriculum at Harvard, Stanford, Yale, and welcome, Chris.
0: Thank you so much, Julian, it's great to be here and I'm looking forward to this discussion because we had a very robust pre-game discussion about this.
1: So the the question or the obstacle is like, how do I know if people are going to actually pay me uh, money for what I build? Some businesses it's it's obvious, let's say a SaaS business, it's easier to do uh, research on this. There are other businesses where it's much less clear and you need to have, like, the proper structure in your thinking. Yeah. One of the examples that you um, uh, have, uh, you know, a lot of, like, exposure to is Airbnb. Um, tell us a bit about how Airbnb thought about their uh, pricing and the willingness to pay other customers uh, in the early days.
0: Absolutely. So. I cannot guarantee that this is exactly how they thought about it because I wasn't there in those early days, but this is more or less what I think happened. When it comes to Airbnb, the thing that people focus on is, oh my God, I can't believe you're gonna let strangers stay in your house for money. Or alternately, oh my God, I can't believe you're gonna sleep in a stranger's house. Aren't they gonna kill you? And so that is the thing that gets all the attention around Airbnb. What does not get attention is the question of, well, how do the economics work? And the bottom line is you could look at Airbnb and say, if the consumer behavior actually plays out, then there is potential, tremendous potential value we can create here. And the reason you could do that is because you could look at the evidence from an existing industry to understand that there was a significant price umbrella under which you could operate. And of course, what I'm speaking about is the hotel industry where you have at all different price points, evidence of one of the biggest industries in the world that people are willing to pay money to be able to stay somewhere, right? Whether it's a hotel or not, guess what? You know, was Conrad Hilton when he first set out like world famous? No, you're like, what's this Hilton hotel? Is it run by a serial killer? Who knows, let's give it a try, right? The Hilton hotel chain does not start off as a world famous hotel chain. It starts off as one guy creates a hotel. And so there is a way to get from unknown to known. There obviously is a way to go from one customer to a million customers. It's not guaranteed, but it's certainly possible. And so you can take a look at Airbnb and you can say, okay, there's a pricing umbrella established by the hotel industry. The fundamental model of Airbnb is there are assets that are not currently being used, the spare bedroom or the guest room or the guest house or what have you. And so the people are currently getting nothing for it. So if they're able to turn around and rent it out via Airbnb, and let's say this hotel room would go for $400 a night on a hotel like the Ritz Carlton, and instead you could get an equivalently nice place in someone's house or in someone's guest house for $200 a night, would you be willing to try it? The answer is yes, because that's a lot of money. And then conversely, you could go to the person who owns the room and say, hey, Are you gonna be willing to go through the hassle of doing some laundry, redoing the sheets, redoing the towels for an extra 200 bucks a night for something you currently get zero for? And the answer is, well, shoot, yes. And what that illustrates is that there is a zone of possible agreement under the pricing umbrella. The zone of possible agreement is a term that comes from the famous negotiation book, Getting Getting to Yes, and it basically says, you can look at the willingness to pay and the willingness to supply and see how much overlap there is if there's no overlap there's no market but if there's a lot of overlap then you know what you can be wrong about the price or you can be wrong about the things but you have a margin of safety that still allows you to find a good clearing price so in the case of airbnb it was clear that there was a big zone of possible agreement it wasn't clear exactly where it was going to land and that is still evolving right i think most people use Airbnb and use it because it costs less than hotels. That's certainly the main reason that I use it. But I will sometimes also use Airbnb because it offers better locations than the hotels and places where there aren't enough hotels. And, or maybe, you know, sometimes it's like, I wanna rent out a whole house for, you know, a vacation with a couple of families. Okay, that's also something where the hotel is not gonna be able to do that. And so, Looking at that, I'm like, okay, I can start off with this basic pricing umbrella. I can start off with this zone of possible agreement, and then I can branch out from there.
1: So, in your b case, what you're outlining is kind of like breaking into two the uh, you know, willingness to pay. So, one is yeah. uh, if we can build this possible future, then how much will people pay? And, you, and that's where the pricing umbrella comes into play. It's like, well, people pay this much for hotel rooms. Therefore, it'll be ballpark that or you yeah. can kind of like model that out. And then there's, well, will this possible future happen or not? And then what you do in the early days of your business is de-risk the likelihood of that possible future. Is it, is it right that that's what's going on?
0: Yeah, exactly. You are de-risking the possible the pro- the possible future by gathering evidence, but you're also conditioning the market as well. So consider the Ubers and Lyfts, the ride-sharing companies in the world. I think that almost everyone you know, if you ask them, hey, does it cost more to call an Uber or Lyft now than it did a decade ago? They will instantly launch you into a long diatribe about how ridiculous the costs are now and how much cheaper it used to be. And your follow-up should be, and so do you use it less as a result? And that will result in an even longer diatribe saying, no, those sons of bitches, I have no alternative. And so what happened was in the early days, it's not a bait and switch, in the early days they subsidized the cost of the rides. That was in order to get to critical mass of drivers and riders so that it would become uh, the kind of utility that you could rely on. But the other thing that was happening is the market was being conditioned to say, this is normal. This is safe. You had to charge less in the early days in order to overcome the uncertainty. And people would say, I don't know if this is gonna work, but damn, it's so much less expensive. I better give it a shot, right? I'm willing to take whatever vague risk there is because this is so cheap. But once it becomes apparent that it is not actually a risk, you no longer have to pay that risk premium as a service, and Uber and Lyft have been able to raise their prices over time because those services have become standard and because, as a result, there is less perceived risk, there is greater willingness to pay, and therefore, even though we complain because, in comparison to the past, these cost so much more, we still don't do a damn thing about it.
1: So this is another example I want us to look at, which is a company called Minerva University. I think you know their, their founder CEO. CEO. Um, and can you kind of like unpack what's unique about yes. their customer's willingness to pay and what that teaches us?
0: So I love Minerva University. It's a brilliant concept. And what Ben Nelson, who was the founder and CEO, basically said is higher education is broken. We have these super elite institutions like Harvard and Stanford and Yale and all these places that teach scaling and people value those incredibly highly they are willing to pay an enormous amount to send their child to these schools some people are willing to pay an enormous amount to buy their children's way into these schools that's a reflection of this huge perceived value and that huge perceived value is actually accurate because the network that the school provides is just tremendous and you know there's been a bunch of studies that have been done showing that the value to a vc of investing in just companies founded by MIT grads and Stanford grads is actually huge. Like this is gonna deliver above average venture capital returns. So all that is completely rational. However, do not mistake that for saying the higher education market is rational. In fact, a tremendous amount of money goes into these immaculately manicured campuses and these fancy dorm rooms and all this kind of stuff that costs a huge amount of money. And we are increasingly seeing like, you know, two administrators for every professor. It just goes nuts all the way along. And it's because you have this giant city that you essentially have to run, right? The university is teaching classes, but it's essentially its own city and it has its own infrastructure and overhead and a result of that. Minerva says, you know what? What if we unbundled this? What if we gave you a world-class educational experience that we believe over time will deliver the reputational benefits of a Harvard or Stanford Yale? And what the way they do this is by bringing together a highly selective cohort of students who are then put up in, you know, basically luxury hotels all over the world. They go from city to city. So they are actually getting a better experience than college students because they're with a cohort of students uh, amazing people, but they're also getting to try new cities instead of, oh yeah, here we go. Let's let's go to Palo Alto again on Friday night. And so it's just so much better in many ways. They're getting exposure to the world. They're learning that way. And because higher education is so damn expensive, it actually makes sense. Like Minerva is running a lower cost operation because you don't need the same level of administrative overhead. Why have a facilities team and a real estate team just rent rooms from a hotel or rent rooms from a a rent, rent rooms from Airbnb for that matter. And so the key thing, however, is the willingness to pay. So Minerva is very small right now. Why is that? It's because most people do not yet trust that it will actually deliver those reputational benefits down the line. If you look at MIT or Stanford, there is over a century's worth of data that this is gonna be worth it. And so that's why people are willing to literally go into debt hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt in order to afford this good because they know it's going to pay off in most cases unless you're dumb enough to major in one of these majors that has no economic use sad to say but true one of the reasons why i have both an engineering degree and a creative writing degree from stanford university they don't charge you extra for the degree you just have to do more work so in the case of minerva there's no proof There is a great experience. You can see that experience. You can talk to existing students. You can know that you're gonna learn from top instructors from around the world. You can know you're gonna get to be in some of the world's greatest cities. You're gonna know you're gonna be with these amazing people and develop these bonds, but you don't know if the reputation is gonna work for you in the long run. So what does it mean? There are specific groups, specific market segments, which will say, you know what? I'm willing to roll the dice on this. Group number one are people who are themselves entrepreneurial and risk-taking they're like, I want to be a pioneer. I want to be one of the first people to do this. And these early adopters are a significant number of the people who go to school at Minerva. The other are people who are already coming from a wealthy background. There's very little risk. You're super duper wealthy. You go to Minerva. Maybe it doesn't work out. Guess what? It doesn't matter. Your family is super duper rich. So it's irrelevant. You can afford to take on that risk. And so These groups are not large enough to make Minerva a huge Stanford scale kind of business right now, but it's enough to be able to, over the next decade or so, demonstrate that this actually works. And eventually, if there's enough actual proof that this works, then you can expand this far beyond the way a Stanford can, because guess what? You can have as many cohorts as you want. They can be decentralized. They can be in countries all over the world there's plenty of professors who are award-winning professors who are willing to lecture for money and because it's fun and you can actually scale this up as a virtual university with a much lower cost uh, and overhead and ultimately make it a phenomenal business that fundamentally revolutionizes an industry but the pricing has to be right which is why it's a premium pricing but for a niche segment right now so so the way to think of
1: willingness of pay and pricing for a business like, you know, MIT is, hey, the value of an MIT degree is you will make, let's say, $20 million more throughout your career. And then, you know, the, so that's one of the, of the components that, you know, customers take into account. The other component they take into account is like, how likely is it that you're going to yeah. make this extra $20 million? And, you know, it's not 100% likely. Let's say it's 50% likely. And then it's like, how knowable or how sure are you of this? In the case of MIT, you're almost 100% sure because there is 100 years of data to show it. While Minerva, they are, you know, they have the same value. Um, the likelihood, I mean, is, let's assume, about the same, but there's no data. So so, so the, the customers, they the most customers will not be willing to pay that much um, you know, up front, which means you, know, you have to start with a smaller uh, you know group of people who are yeah. less risk averse and more value oriented.
0: Right, and here's an interesting point. So you could, if you were Minerva, raise a colossal amount of money and subsidize, charge less money and get more students in, but that doesn't actually help you, right? Having more students, doesn't necessarily prove anything. You need the proving over time. And so maybe in five years, and six years, they may wanna do that to scale up a little bit, but they probably don't need to just because the increasing reputation of the university is allowing them to reach more and more segments. So why discount if you don't have to? Why mess with the economics if you don't have to? It should naturally grow over time.
1: Right, so for Minerva there, you know thesis would be people are willing to pay ballpark the same as a uh ivy league degree so it's a 50k um and there's a small group of people who will do that and we want our pricing to reflect that um that premium uh you know value and we want to recruit people who are not risk averse and are very value uh conscious and that's not going to be a lot of people, but as we, uh, you know, de-risk the value proposition, it'll become more and more. And then, you know, over time, you know, it could be this really massive opportunity. And when you're pitching this to potential investors, I think what you are saying is you want to be upfront about that. It's not just investors, it's yourself. It's like, hey, look, it's going to take 10 years to, for this to become a, you know, business that can touch a lot of people because there's a missing component, which is data generated over time, which we're gonna try to accelerate, but that takes time.
0: Absolutely. And again, it, it ultimately ties back to what we talked about, which is it operates under the Ivy League pricing umbrella and it has to take into account the customer willingness to pay, what's different about it relative to the incumbent and how that ultimately allows you to charge you the same or, and have for a, for a, an experience that you're actually able to deliver with lower overhead. So
1: let's just, as we wrap this up, uh, do just remind people or make the case to people of why it's important to think through willingness to pay of customers uh, when you're at my level, which is, yeah. you know, you don't have a business. And uh, you know, so, so why is it so important for me and for other entrepreneurs, uh, you know, at my stage to, you know, have clarity of thought around will people pay for this and how much will they pay?
0: Yeah. So willingness to pay is the fundamental thing. You'll sometimes hear people say, make something people want. You'll hear people say, make a aspirin, not a vitamin. These are all just different ways to arrive at the notion of willingness to pay because that's fundamental economics. Everything is supply and demand, willingness to pay meeting the willingness to supply and where those lines intersect. And so when you're building a business, if you don't think about willingness to pay upfront, you could end up putting yourself in a low willingness to pay business. And then it doesn't matter how brilliant you are at executing, how great you are at marketing, how wonderful your technology is, because you're stuck in a market where the willingness to pay is never enough to actually produce something of significant value. And so to do this, you know, it's not just a question of somebody says on a survey they're willing to pay. You have to actually think about their context, right? In the case of Minerva, I'm sure Ben Nelson sat down and said, okay, what are people actually willing to pay for? And their insight is we can deliver the thing that they're willing to pay for, which is the reputation, brand, and opportunities but at the same time, deliver a superior product because we can lower the overhead and make more money and also deliver an experience that a significant segment of students will say is better than the traditional experience. And so having that hypothesis around willingness to pay then shapes your strategy. It shapes how you choose to build the product, it shapes your go-to-market, and having clarity of thought around that makes all these decisions so much easier because you can then refer back to willingness to pay and say, okay. Is this allowing our willingness to pay hypothesis to be proven? Does this increase the consumer willingness to pay or not? And it just offers a powerful lens for making decisions and refining what you do. So, uh,
1: everyone, if you've gotten to this point in our episodes, cause you found Chris, uh, super compelling, hopefully you found me compelling enough, obviously not as compelling as Chris. But uh, what you need to do is like this video or subscribe uh, so that you can get more of these. Um, Chris, thank you for the time. Thank you to everyone who joined our live stream and asked questions on the live stream. Thank you to our team, Jeremy, Schloke, and Brendan for uh, you know, setting everything up and making this possible. And uh, Chris, I'll see you next week.
0: Thank you so much, Julian.